Good afternoon, Jeff Stevens here. Just wanted to share a sermon that I preached on February 28th from Deep Creek Baptist Church. Enjoy. So good morning again and welcome to Deep Creek. Um, we're going to do a message this morning that um, I believe is really important for our time right now. So if you're a note taker, and uh, I know some of you are, the note that I would like you to write down first is the word stereos, S-T-E-R-E-O-S, stereos. But it's actually not pronounced stereos, but I figured that would be the easiest way to get it out because it looks, it's spelled exactly this name. The name is, the word is actually stereos, stereos. And that word is the Greek word for firm, hard, or immovable, like a foundation. We want to build a firm foundation. And I think you'll find as we go through the text that we're going to use this morning, that this is an extremely important word that we need to look at, exposit from the text, investigate, and find out why it's important for us. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you the this day in history. If, if you've listened to me talk from the pulpit before, you know that I like doing this day in history. There's, you know, the old things. If you, if you don't, those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. And the rest of us who love history are doomed with standing by and watching everybody else repeat it. And there's nothing we can do about it, right? But um, you've heard me also talk about the Scottish Covenanters, and I have an ancestor who was a Covenanter. So the Covenanters were kind of a uh, revolutionary group in Scotland, uh, and, and this is, it's neat for me to look at this because I have a very important relative who was a part of it, but this was a huge, violent, religious period of time uh, in Great Britain, and, and it's an important thing to look at, and, and I think you'll find that there are a lot of things that are parallels between them and us, between then and now. So on this day, February 28th in 1638 in Greyfriar, Edinburgh, Scotland, the National Covenant was signed. And that covenant essentially was this. It rejected the attempt by King Charles I and William Laud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to force the Scottish church to conform to English literature practice and church governance. The government was forcing the church to do church the way the government saw fit. The things they said, the things they preached, the things they practiced, when and where, to include putting hymnals in the church that were not offensive to the king in the liturgy of Great Britain. Anybody else see this coming? It's coming. My direct ancestor and Presbyterian minister, Donald Cargill, was one of those that signed that covenant. Presbyterian minister back then. So in a nutshell, the government is trying to force the church to believe something that's ungodly. How they pray, how they think, and how they teach. If you've already opened your Bibles to 1 Peter 5, read with me, if you will, I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go right through verse 11. If it sounds weird to you that what I'm reading, I know some of you have the King James. I'll be reading out of the NASB. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, 
as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at a proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober, sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Firm in your faith. Where do we get this? I don't want to exposit the entire text. There's way too much here to get. So I want to nug down kind of on one little point. So I'm just going to give you a brief overview. What do we see here? What is Peter telling us in the text? As we go from verse 1 down through verse 5, essentially what we're getting is an urging of the elders. He calls himself an elder. He's one of them. He's a brother in Christ with the elders. As we know, there's a position for elders in the church, how they act, who they are, the lifestyle that they lead, and he is one of them. And he is calling them one of the elders to care for the flock. And he's urging younger believers to subject themselves to their elders. So not just younger people, but younger believers. It's a discipleship call. So I'm calling on the elders to go lead the church. And I'm calling on the younger believers to go become disciples, essentially. As we get into the verses six through nine, it talks a little bit about our conduct, the preparation that we have for our ministry, and some warnings. As we go into verse 10 and 11, we're going to talk a little bit about our hope, and then Peter's going to give us a promise here. But in verse 8, I want to, I want to get down on this. In verse 8, what do we see? When he says to be sober... The word that is used for sober is just like the word that we would use to be sober as if you did not drink too much. So put that into context. What does it mean to be sober of mind? It's to be clear. It's to be able to have clear thoughts about our ministry, about our walk, about our faith. We are to be completely clear in what we do. We don't muddle it with the things that go on in the world or the things that go on in the church. It's an absolutely pure relationship that we have. The second part of this is that Satan is prowling like a lion. I think we skip over this a little bit. Prowls like a lion. Four simple little words that are really easy to just kind of, yeah, he's just kind of cruising around looking for people to hurt. 
I think it's important that Peter wrote it this way. I don't know if you feel the way I do, but as a kid, when I was young, I used to watch um, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. We had three channels where I grew up on TV, and we didn't have a whole lot of selection about what we were going to watch. You know, the click, click, get to channel. I think it was on channel five. It was like eight o'clock on a Sunday night. Does anybody remember what that guy's name was? I hosted the show. Man, I loved that show as a kid. But I remember watching the lions. You remember this? Like the lions are like the, one of the most perfect hunting animals, right? They hide in the grass and they watch the gazelle. And the gazelle's not paying attention. He's out, he's like, man, look at this feast of berries. His head is down and he's not paying attention. Maybe there's a couple of them. The gazelle feels safe. And a lion pounces. And then you watch the chase ensue. And that guy, he's speaking and, and he's telling you the story and it gets exciting and the music picks up. And that lion, what, I mean, the gazelle is scared. He's scared for his life. And all the lion can think of is, I'm killing this thing. I'm going to kill it. I'm not going to fail. I'm hungry. And then when he finally gets it, he sinks these huge claws into the backside of the gazelle and they dig in so deep into the flesh and into the sinuous, into the bone that it can't get away. As soon as the claws are in, the fight is over. Although you may watch a fight, those claws have already done enough damage that that gazelle will never be the same again. It's completely ruined its ability to move. And then the lion sinks his face into the guts of this thing and just and eats and pulls it apart into pieces, tears the meat from its flesh. And when you see the lion pick his face up and you see the cameraman is looking right into his face, you see a face covered in blood. I think it's important for us to get this from this text. Satan wants you to die. He wants to ruin your very being. That is why there are arguments in the church. That is why our government is a mess. That is why our communities have the strife they have. All of the, I mean, we could make a list of a thousand issues. That is why they are there. Because Satan is prowling around just ripping people apart. But verse 9, Peter is going to give us the answer to this. How do we stop it? How do we stop this lion? I mean, we can't stop him from coming for us. But how do we make ourselves so that we're unable to be attacked in the way that the gazelle is? How do we make it so that we've got a good defense? How do we make it so that we are able to prevent ourselves from becoming a meal when the lion is out there prowling around looking for us, our kids, our friends. And the answer to that is resist him firm in faith. What does that mean to be firm in your faith? That's where that word comes from, stereos, to be firm. It means firm, hard, immovable on a strong foundation. So then that lends so the next question is, well, how do I do that? How do I build a firm foundation? How do I become firm in my faith? How do I get to a point where I know that I know that I am saved because he took upon himself the burden of sin for the world? How do I know that? I was considering this this morning. This wasn't written into my notes. 
I, I told you earlier, I got done listening to my girls sing worship music last night in our home. It fills my heart. I leave my house this morning and I, I've got uh, Spotify on my phone and I just click on music that comes up. And one of the things that's in my favorites list is the Gettys. I don't know if anybody listens to the to Getty worship, but I think they do a lot of hymns, but they'll do hymns kind of in a modern context. And it, they're just wonderful. So I'll listen to them in the car. And uh, one of the hymns came on this morning um, and I was listening to the words of this song and as I was listening to the, and I was not deeply listening, it was kind of in the background as I was thinking on the way here. And one of the things that came on was this pouring out of wrath. Like the lion, but God. As much wrath as you can possibly imagine poured out on our God. And I think what a, what an amazing juxtaposition where as believers we think, well, Jesus paid for my sin. Jesus covered my sin. Jesus made a way for me. That's kind of, that's like the, that's kind of the easy way out. It's, right, it's true. The theology is true. Did he not? Did he not pay for our sin? Did he not pave a way for us? Did he not open up the heavens and make it so that we can go be with him? Yeah, absolutely. I can't imagine a father, an almighty father, all-powerful, pouring out his wrath on his own child. He destroyed him. Every sin that you were born into through Adam and every sin that you've committed in your life, times however many billions of people will exist, God took all of those and crushed his son. so that he can make a way. I think we forget that sometimes, that the payment was heavy. That's part of creating that foundation perspective. That's where we begin to build that foundation by knowing who we're gonna build it on and how. How do we build resilience in the church would be the next question. I can be at home reading my word of God and worshiping God and have a great marriage, but that is well and good and means nothing if I don't bring it outside my home and share it with my neighbors, with my friends, with my family in a way that it perpetuates the gospel. Could God do it on his own? Yep. Absolutely. But that's not the plan. I don't know why. He told us to go. We're going to go. That's it. It's the command. So what is attacking us? You could probably come up with a, a good list of things. Let me go over some things that are attacking our kids today. I know you know some of these things, but it's a reminder of what's going on in the community. These are things that are humongous problems in our society that we must face as a church, theologically and with love only. Critical theory, critical race theory, and critical race theology, absolutely tearing apart our schools, from elementary school, middle school, and high school, and it has already destroyed colleges across our country. Absolutely destroyed it. I'm not going to go into what they are. If you, Listen to the Just Thinking podcast. Just Thinking. Two black men telling you why Satan is leveraging the plight of other black men 
to pull people apart by race. It has nothing to do with being white, red, yellow, brown, orange, whatever color you are. It has everything to do with the lion creeping through the field, finding crafty ways to attack his next meal, period. It is a Marxist ideology related to social, economic, and political structures on how races, creeds, colors, and religions interact as oppressors or oppressed, depending on their place in society. And it's filth. And we have to stand strong against it in the word of God. Intersectionality is another one that has already taken over our schools, our workplaces. What intersectionality really is, and I'll let you do the own, your own study to get into it because it's way too long, as somebody who would ascribe to intersectionality would mean that I'd have to acknowledge my own position as an oppressor or oppressed dependent on the number of subgroups that I would fall within based on society, my race, my gender, my sexual orientation, religion, social status, economic status, physical abilities, and whatever other subgroup you can try to jam me in. The worst of all being this guy right here I'm essentially the worst oppressor that you could ever find in the history of humankind. Well, I missed out on the rich one. So maybe not the worst. So take the rich one out. So I'm one down. Straight, white, might be a surprise to some of you. Married, Christian, male, with a job, a house, and a car, and no outward physical disabilities. According to intersectionality, I am pretty much the worst person in the world. It gets so bad that even though I'm married to a person who is not white, that most of the people that ascribe to this would say that it is because of my white privilege that I am married to someone that is not white. My right white fragility, right? We've, Carol and I have got jokes about that all day. We'll share those after church. But other Marxist and socialist movements who include Black Lives Matter, who support Marxism, destroying the nuclear family, and supporting the killing of babies. Seems counterintuitive that a group who says that they support the perpetuation, the solidarity of, and the advancement of the black community would support the killing of millions of black babies. Maybe I'm missing something, but that doesn't seem right to me. Then we have the militant LGBTQ movement. Militant. They hate you if you're Christian. And the normalization of sodomy and pornography. I don't know if anybody here this week read HR5, the equality bill. It's making its way through government. It's not about equality. It's about the normalization of things that are not godly. The more we see them and the more we become accustomed to seeing them in culture, the less we call them what they are. Now, I'm not saying you should go call your neighbor a sodomizer because it's not the loving way to present the gospel to people, but we have to call sin what it is. It is sin. 
We have to address it as sin. In another sermon, we can talk about how to reach and love those people. In this one, what we're doing, we're just saying that these are problems in our society that are going to tear apart our church, period. Schools, workplaces, government organizations are all pushing agendas that are contrary to our faith. Our faith, they are contrary to it. They're quickly moving from not only stifling your beliefs and my beliefs, but to saying that we are bigots and we hate people. Churches are replacing the gospel with reconciliation of critical race theory, the prosperity gospel, and the empty, wasteful teaching that tickles ears. It doesn't challenge Christians to read their Bible. It doesn't challenge them to learn about their faith. It doesn't challenge them to serve one another, love one another, reach their neighbors for the good news of Jesus Christ. It's empty. I'm happy to be in this church because the things that we've seen, my wife and I, since we've been here, where people love each other and go visit each other, this is not the norm. We've been in other churches. I mean, we traveled in the military, dead churches, the best music, and we joke about it, and Brian and I joke about it, the best laser light show, the best, the biggest amplifiers, the best preachers. They are by far the best preachers. They give the best message. They are the coolest, easiest to listen to, most phenomenal. And you leave and you just feel like, man, wasn't that good? And empty, completely empty. I want to read you a quote, and it's a little bit long, so I hope you can bear with me, but I want you to listen. Don't zone out. You got to drink water because it is long. But this quote is from Paul Washer. Those of you who are fans of Paul Washer may have seen this video, and I had to look. I'm glad I was able to find it, but there was a transcript of what he said, and uh this is pretty telling. But like I said, bear with me. Don't look at your phone. And listen just for a minute to what Paul Washer had to say. He said, the church in America is going to suffer terribly. Future tense. And we laugh now, but they will come after us and they will come after our children. They will close the net around us when we're playing soccer mom and soccer dad while we are arguing over so many little things and mesmerized by so many trinkets, the net even now is closing around you and your children and your grandchildren, and it does not cause you fear. You will be isolated from society as, as has already happened. Anyone who tries to run for office who actually believes the Bible will be considered a lunatic until finally we are silenced we will be called things, uh, pardon me, we will be called things we're not and persecuted not for being followers of Christ, but for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the true way of Christ, which of course is love and tolerance. You'll go down as the greatest bigots and haters of mankind in history. 
They've already come after your children, and for most of you, they've got them. They've got them through the public schools and indoctrination and universities and indoctrination. And you wonder why your children come out not serving the Lord. It's because you fed them right into the devil's mouth. So little by little, the net is closing around them. And then it's not little by little. Look how fast things are going downhill. Just in a matter of weeks. But at the same time, know this. Persecution is always meant for evil, but God always means it for good. And it is not better to suffer in this life to have an extra weight of glory in heaven. You must settle this in your mind. This is the one thing I want to say over and over. Down through history, you have a wrong idea of martyrdom and persecution. You think that these men were persecuted and martyred for their sincere faith in Jesus Christ. That was the real reason but no one heard that publicly. They were martyred and they were persecuted as enemies of the state, as bigots and narrow-minded, stupid people who had fallen for a rouse and could contribute nothing to society. Your suffering will not be noble. Your, so your mind must be filled with the word of God when all people persecute you and turn on you. This is no game. You want revival and awaking, but know this. For the most part, great awakening have come only preceding the great national catastrophe and the persecution of the church. I believe God is bringing a great awakening, but I believe that he is raising up young men and women who are strong and trust in the providence of God to be able to wade through the hell that's going to break loose on us. And it will not, and it will be on us before we even recognize it, unless Unless it's God's providence. He's not done. He's not done. 2008. 13 years ago. I mean, I don't know if anybody else saw that video, but I was hearing his words about him saying what the schools and the government are going to do. And it just, my brain is going in a million directions about the, if you ever watch C-SPAN and you listen to Believers sit in front of Congress and get questioned. They are already outwardly questioning their faith and whether or not they're able to make reasonable, legal, governmental decisions based on the bigotry that they're taught in church. They're not even hiding it anymore. That doesn't make any sense. I think what Paul Washer is saying is it's not supposed to make sense. This is the way that the devil is prowling right now. And he's gaining ground. And he's like, that's okay. We know it's going to happen. We got to rest in this. We're just going to keep chucking along like good Christians. We're going to keep loving people because it's coming. Churches have been closed for a year. Does anybody not forget that? Most of the churches in our country are still closed today. We, this is a rarity. Churches in California, they are walking in and arresting people. Last week, a pastor was arrested and is still in jail in Canada. Last week. He got arrested for preaching the word of God from the pulpit. Because Christians don't believe in science. Apparently, those dummies don't know how to get to the CDC website either. 
Because I can do it. There's not a pandemic killing people in the church. There's a government jamming a wedge down between us. I don't know about you, Christian. I won't stand for it. We are the radical bigots. We are the people who hate. We are homophobic, Islamophobic, transphobic, fill in the phobia. That's how they see us. Because Satan has twisted their minds. Because he's out hunting. And he doesn't stop. There's, there's a, a passage in Matthew 24 where Jesus is going to remind us about upcoming persecution. Um, I won't ask you to turn there because I'll kind of blast through it as we creep up on our last few minutes. But Matthew 24, starting at verse 9 and going through 14, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. It seems like a promise. He didn't say, maybe he'll put you up. He says, then they will. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake, right? They hate us because we love Jesus. And then many will fall away and betray one another. So by that, he means people in the church are weak and not on a firm foundation. They are not stereos in their faith. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. This again is referring to the church. This is the prosperity gospel, the tickling of ears. This is the junk that's being put out in some of these big churches that are like, don't worry about it. Just meet us online. Meet us online. Send in your tithe online. Just send that money in. Don't worry about it. I mean, that guy's driving a Ferrari and you're getting your worship in the living room. That's good enough for the week, I guess. Don't worry about your kids growing up in Christ. We got to watch Joel on TV. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. How do you endure? Firm foundation. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's it. It seems pretty simple. Big commands, right? They are going to persecute the church, period. People in the church are going to start persecuting each other, period. A bunch of you Christians will go follow false people, period. And then the end's going to come. I know we all want our country to get better, right? We all want it to get better. We want the world to get better. Let's be honest. It's not gonna. It's not, it's not gonna get better. I know, especially during this last election season, we were like, if we don't do something, the world's gonna come to an end. The country's gonna go to hell. Look, I get it. I get it. We have lived so soft as a church for the last couple hundred years that we've forgotten what the people live like before the, do you remember why a bunch of the people came here? So I talked about Donald Cargill at the beginning. Do you know why his people left Scotland and moved to northern Vermont? Because people in the Presbyterian Church were being hunted. That was in the 1700s. This is not. This is not new news. This is. This happens, and it's going to get worse again. 
I'm not saying not to strive. Look, I'm a firm believer in standing for your community, serving in your community, getting on boards, uh, serving our kids, serving in your school, serving in your school. I don't go do that. That is how we minister to people. Go vote. I believe it's our responsibility as Christians to vote. We cast our vote. We are supposed to support our government in certain ways. That's one of the ways that we are supposed to go and show who we are. Do that. I'm just being clear that the Bible and Jesus specifically say things are going to get worse. That's a pretty doomy and gloomy message. Happy Sunday. Sun's outside. Everything's going to get worse. Go forth and love your neighbor. So how do we deal with it, right? How do we get around this? How do we train so that we're prepared to deal with the truth of the coming changes to our communities, schools, churches, and government? So I want to read you a little something else. I won't quite quote it quite as long. Um, but uh, this is a lady that you should read a little bit of because she has an amazing story. Her name is Corey Ten Boom. Anybody ever heard of her? So she was a writer. She was a watchmaker when she was young. She was a writer. I want to read you this. Um, I'll be honest with you, I'm not big into her theology or what her firm beliefs are, but she has some very amazing truths about her situation and where she was that are very applicable to us today when it comes to persecution. So she's Dutch. Uh, like I told you, she was a watchmaker. So her, her and her dad did watches together. And during the persecution of the Jews, just prior to World War II, and then throughout the war, uh, when they were pulling Jews into prison camps, excuse me, her family was hiding Jews in her home. And they were eventually caught, and they were imprisoned, and they went to a couple different prison camps and separated at one point, and then her and her sister had gone through two, and they ended up in Ravensbrück, which was a concentration camp. And they're there, excuse me, for about 11 months. Her and her sister are there for 11 months, and she was having Bibles snuck into the concentration camp so she could read to people while she was there. I don't know if there were any Christian men there, but immediately when I read this, I'm like, where are the Christian dudes? Like, why does this lady have to take over the ministry and there's not a guy there that's like, I'll take you. I will take this job from you. The risk she was taking just seems like a good solid guy firm in his faith would be like, I'd rather take that risk from you so you're not the one who bears the burden of this. But apparently we continue to have this problem in the church, do we not? Where men are unwilling to step up. But apparently God was using her for an amazing ministry because she did just that. Many people were saved prior to their impending death. Absolutely unbelievable. People were not prepared for any sort of tribulation in their life and their faith was weak. This is what she said. Her sister died there. Her sister died like two weeks before they were released. And her sister said these, this is her recorded last words. There's no pit so deep that he, God, is not deeper still. That is a firm faith. This is what she said we need to do to be firm in our faith. These are quotes from her. She said, first we need to feed on the word of God, digest it. Make it part of our being. This will mean disciplined Bible study, 
each day as we're not only to memorize long passages of Scripture, but put the principles to work in our lives. Nothing to add to that. That is an absolute truth. That is written throughout the entire gospel. If you look into John chapter 6, you get to verse 35. What does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. What Corey Ten Boom is saying here is feed on him. This is your firm faith. Feed on him. You gotta get in the book. You gotta read it. You gotta contemplate it. You gotta worship him. You gotta drink it in. Or else it'll never touch your heart. She also said this, she said, next we need to develop a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, not just the Jesus of yesterday, the Jesus of history, but the life-changing Jesus of today who is still alive and sitting at the right hand of God. How do we develop that relationship? I think there's examples in places like John 15 where Christ's command to us is abide in me, to dwell with him. Everything that you do has to do with him follow his commandments if you read john 15 do what i told you to do love one another sacrificially serve one another go bear good fruit and we commune together for his glory we're developing that relationship she also says this we must be filled with the holy spirit there is no optional command in the bible it's absolutely necessary those earthly disciples could never have stood up under the persecution of the jews and the romans had they not waited for pentecost each of us needs our own personal Pentecost. The baptism of the Holy Spirit will never be able to stand in the tribulation without it. It's not a charismatic call. It's not a call for some speaking in tongues or special gifts. It's a call for the truth of the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart and realizing that he is inside of you and he's given you that power, not a special weird magical power, but the power to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ to the hurting and the dead in the world. Acts 13 says this, for the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's us, that's us bringing salvation to people. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying in the word of God. So they are happy, look what we're doing. And as many were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. Imagine that. During a huge persecution of Jews and Christians by Romans and Jews to Christians, they are spreading the gospel, and people are getting saved by the thousands. Maybe we're not doing a good enough job, church. But the Jews incited a, uh, the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. So persecution comes. But they shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. He's pleased with us when we do his will. In the coming persecution, whether it's during your life, mine, or our kids, we've got to be prepared to encourage one another through it. Is it not true that 
When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. They will be. It might just be a, a shirk at work where somebody knows you're a Christian and they're like, yeah, I don't believe in that junk. Maybe that's, maybe that's as persecuted as you'll get. Maybe it'll be firm denial. Maybe it'll be prison. Maybe it'll be beheading. I've been to almost all the corners in the world. Some of the places I've been, like the Pashtun region of Pakistan and Afghanistan, less than 1% of the people there are believers. And the only, only, only way they get the gospel there is through a couple of high-powered radio stations. Because if people even admit that they're believers, they kill them. There's no way for it to spread. Vice, divine spreading. The people there can't even tell their own family that they're saved. They'll just kill them. It's the most unchurched place in the world. The places I got to visit in Africa, the militant Islamic groups, if they find out a village is starting to get saved and they're starting to realize that there's hope for them, they will crush that hope by going into the village, raping all of the women, raping all of the children, and then killing the men and the women and stealing the children to put them either into their indoctrination program or slavery or the sex trade. Tribulation is happening in this world in a very, very visceral and extreme way today. People didn't drive to Deep Creek in most places in the world. Corey Ten Boom said this, we have failed. We should have made the people strong for persecution. Rather than telling them that Jesus would come first, tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution, how to stand when the tribulation comes, to stand and not faint. We got to be firm. It's happening. It's happening now. I watched my kids come out of a high school where they deny God. The books deny God. They deny creation. Are you stereos in your faith? Have you built the foundation of your joy on Jesus Christ? His word, his fellowship with the saints on the commandments. When you do, you get what is promised at the end of Peter's prayer. So what we read in the beginning, I just want to remind you, as we read from 1 Peter 5, when we go to verse 10, we are reminded of this. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is our prayer. That we know that he will come. That he will resurrect us with him. He will perfect us. And we will live in glory with him for his glory.